0: Detroit Today, I'm on 1019 WDETM, your host, Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've chosen to join us. We're going to spend the rest of the hour with a really special guest who has a new piece that's part of the second chapter in the Atlantic Magazine's Inheritance Series. That's a project that it's about American history and black life, and if you regularly listen to the program here, you might remember back in February when I talked with several of the writers who contributed to this really compelling and important series. Now, as the second chapter debuts this week, the focus is on black history in the spaces and places Where Memories Live, and I'm very excited to welcome one of the contributors to this new chapter, Annette Gordon-Reed, who is the Carl Loeb University professor at Harvard. She's also the author of The Hemingses of Monticello, An American Family, which won the 2009 Pulitzer Prize for History, and her brand new book is called On Juneteenth. Her piece in the Atlantic's Inheritance Series is titled Este America. I hope that I've pronounced that right uh, and is actually an excerpt from her new book. In it, Gordon Reed details the little-known history of Africans in America before the slave trade began in 1619. Professor Annette Gordon-Reed, welcome to Detroit Today.
1: Thank you very much for having
0: me. Yes, it's great to have you here. Uh, Before we get into the specifics of this piece, I want to have you talk just more broadly about how you're looking at this moment in American culture, when it seems that so many people are willing, more than they were perhaps before, to take an honest look at the narratives around the African-American experience, at racism, its history, its present iteration, uh, and to think about change are we at a critical moment uh, an inflection point i guess in american history on that subject
1: well we seem to be there's a lot more discussion about the issue of race and its application not just in terms of social life but police and the the segment that you had before there's been an amazing conversation that's been taking place and also with the um, with the killing of George Floyd, the protests around the country in every state of the union, and also all over the world, people saying black lives matter. It's a, a phrase that had come into some uh, for criticism uh, when that, uh, by the time that this, all of this started happening and there was sort of a sea change in people's understanding about that phrase and what it actually meant, divorcing it from a particular group of people, but thinking about the concept. Why why, do you, why is it necessary to say that, that Black lives matter? Not that other lives didn't matter, but there had been some, uh, there's a question in the, some people's minds about whether Black lives do matter. So I, I do think inflection point, uh, we'll see uh, if there's something that actually changes. But there's definitely more willingness to talk about these issues. Mm -hmm.
0: So so you were raised in uh, Texas, and you Mm -hmm. begin your piece in the Atlantic by recounting the kinds of history lessons you were taught uh, growing up there. Can you talk just a little about that?
1: Well, I mean, Texas is a place that has a very, very large sense of itself, (laughs) uh, very self-regarding. We take history uh, in fourth and Texas history, fourth grade, seventh grade, and we learn to. We're taught to revere the idea of the Texas Republic. Uh, Very proud of the fact that Texas was its own republic for a time, and to remember the Alamo, remember Goliad, uh, famous. Well, the Alamo wasn't much of a battle, but the uh, <laughs> uh, the defeat uh, at the Alamo and uh, San Jacinto, the victory that came after that, as um, sort of heroic figures. But there was always or what I didn't know at the time that there was an issue about slavery that was embedded in those whole those battles because Mexico was against slavery, um, had been moving to abolish slavery, and the Texas Republic was set up with the idea that slavery would be the basis of their economy. So that isn't something that I learned about as a kid. I learned about that later on. We talked about slavery, but not about the relationship between that and the Texas Republic and the kinds of uh, battles they were having, the issue that they were having with the Mexican government. So. You have this thing that you 're supposed to be proud of, but if you dig a little bit deeper, you realize it was a much more complicated story than was presented hmm.
0: and, and and digging deeper uh, brought you to the story of estebanico, and I think mm-hmm. I am pronouncing that right, and I should be able to pronounce that because that is actually uh, my name in in uh, spanish <laughs> esteban <laughs> uh, <laughs> but but talk about this particular individual and uh, why he stood out to you. Uh, when you first learned about him
1: well we did I, I will say he was mentioned in school but it was sort of in passing but it wasn't until later that i began to hear about or to to read about the fact that at people of african descent came to north america and central america and south america with um spanish with mm-hmm. the spanish uh explorers conquistadors however you want to style them and Estebanico uh, was the first, as far as we know, the first person of African descent to be in what is now Texas, um, having been on an expedition with 300 other uh, people to first go to the Floridas, which was Florida and other, the whole region there was considered the Floridas, what, what now has been divided up into states, gone to Cuba first, had some mishaps, and ended up going across the Gulf of Mexico on a raft uh, with uh, other men and landing near Galveston, Texas, uh, in the 1520s. And ended up being there for several years, walking across Texas and Mexico to the, to the Pacific seaboard and encountering Native Americans. He was used as a translator. Uh, he Sometimes he served as a translator between uh, the Native Uh, Indigenous people and the explorers. He apparently had a talent for languages. And I just was reflecting on the fact that if we had had a broader sense of what of of African people in the Americas beyond just Jamestown, Hmm. sort of as the creatures of English people, essentially, uh, and then coupled with the notion that that there was um, the discovery for me uh, later on when I was in college, I guess in high school, about St. Augustine in Florida, uh, black settlements, black people, again, who'd come with the Spanish. And somehow it struck me as odd that just because we don't speak Spanish <laughs> naturally, just because the English won that people of African descent would sort of adopt the same boundaries hmm. and categories as Europeans. I mean Spanish speaking enslaved people had much in common with English people, English speaking enslaved people. They lived under white supremacy. They lived under under slavery. And so my the point of the the piece in the Atlantic is for us to to you know, obviously to think about Jamestown in 1619 but to expand those categories and say that black people were all over the americas north and south uh, before 1619 doing all kinds of things some of them left the spanish uh, expo- uh, the spanish expeditions and went off on their own mm-hmm. and there were maroon communities in veracruz and places in uh, in mexico and and you know central america so the black experience is much more varied than plantation slavery is a, to put it put it fine you know, long story short
0: that's what this this piece is about yeah yeah and and this story of uh, Esteban Estebanico is i mean look there are, there are difficulties to to any sort of uh, you know african presence i think uh, on this continent uh, from the time europeans uh, get here but but in a way mm-hmm. uh, this is a good story this is an inspiring story uh, about uh, perseverance and overcoming, uh, and the kinds of things that uh, not only get overlooked outside the context of slavery, but also get overlooked somewhat in inside of slavery. That uh, some of the things that uh, Estebanico was doing are were, were common among among slaves as well.
1: Yes, absolutely, absolutely, and. Uh, what was fascinating to me about the story, I, I, I have to give credit to Andres Resendis, whose book uh, *Land So Strange* is the basic source for what I know about uh, the more that, about this particular expedition. Um, the point he makes about how when they break off, when they lose the Actually, the, the expedition of like 300 people ends up being like four <laughs> because of deaths and you know battles with indigenous people and so forth. And Estebanico, as they're going across the the state, going across what is would be the state, was a pivotal figure for them. But the moment they meet up with the other uh, uh, Spaniards on the Pacific seaboard uh, near uh, north north uh, north Mexico close to California he sort of reverts to being enslaved you know so it's they they saw him they used him when they needed him but then when they were back with their the other people all of a sudden he go his his status uh, reverts to what it was before hmm. but enslaved people were doing all kinds of things uh, within slavery and without a slavery I mean you could say black people were doing all sorts of things within slavery and without him you're right it was not it was not a you know people don't think about what it all the kind the types of things they were doing the very types of things they were doing that required skill and required knowledge and expertise it's just they were they were like treated in many history books like non-people in a way
0: Hmm. Hmm. Uh, i'm talking with annette gordon reed uh, a harvard professor Uh, who has written uh, the opening piece in the second chapter of the Atlantic Magazine's project, Inheritance. Uh, Her piece takes a look at uh, the presence of Africans in America before the slave trade begins, uh, kind of officially, in 1619. Um, If you want to join the conversation, uh, give us a call and tell us uh, about the people and stories from local or American history that uh, you've learned about as an adult that you wish you might have learned about or learned more about when you were in school. That is really the point of this uh, tremendous Atlantic series that's uh, going on, kind of unearthing stories of Africans and Africans, African-Americans that we just have not been told in a lot of uh, cases or certainly have not been told uh, in full. Uh, give us a sense of how you might change education in this com- in this country to reflect more of that reality uh, tell us for yourself how are you able to sort of fill in the gaps of uh, the things that we weren't told uh, or weren't told fully uh, in school. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we will work you into the conversation. Uh, Annette, I want to talk about Esteban Ego and how he fits into the origins uh, of Juneteenth, Juneteenth, and also uh, remind our listeners that your new book is uh, about uh, Juneteenth. Juneteenth. Uh, Talk about how those two things intersect.
1: Well, the book is a series of essays about Texas. It is about Juneteenth. It's a meditation on Juneteenth, But the idea was to write about uh, the history of Texas through my own family story using Juneteenth and what Juneteenth meant um, as sort of a jumping off place. Uh, Because Juneteenth, obviously, it was the end of uh, the announcement of the end of slavery in Texas, um, June 19th, 1865. And so my idea was to go back and look at the road to that, what led us to this point. African-Americans and their presence in Texas up until that point, and then to talk a little bit about what happened after June, um, uh, Juneteenth. So I, I began with an essay about integrating the schools in my, in my hometown and, you know, why, why this was necessary, why it was necessary that we were living in a society where people were segregated in schools and doctor's offices and Movie theaters by race, so this all of these things are together. I I think it's the history is so much a part of. uh, Context is so much a part of of history, and you really have to know, read around the subject uh, to really to truly understand it. So, the anchor essay is is uh, on Juneteenth and talking about the history of that day through my family story, but the other chapters talk about about texas how we came to the point that you know general granger had to be there in galveston telling people that chattel slavery did not exist hmm. anymore
0: yeah yeah uh, again 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones let's start with uh, john in windsor john welcome to the show
2: good morning sir great mm-hmm. show as usual thank you um I have two comments. One, my family was brought over in 1685 as indentured servants from Europe. I'm a Caucasian. So (laughs) indentured servant, slave, is there much of a difference, right? Because there were laws against us leaving. The other half of my family, are First Nation from Seattle, Washington area, the Samish Nation, when the Europeans arrived, we had two thousand members, one of the largest tribes in in North America. One hundred and ten years later, we were down to one hundred and thirty people. Wow,
0: wow, wow! So, 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 John, give me a sense of how that history, which is pretty rich and and uh, you know spans a pretty broad spectrum uh, of of americanism i guess H- how does that inform you now how does that influence the way you think of yourself um and i know you're calling from windsor uh not not here in detroit but but how do, how does it shape the way you think well, of yourself I, yeah go ahead
2: well it was interesting because i was raised in new jersey and <laughs> <in> new york <laughs> Um, Being First Nation, um, my father tried to push it down. Uh, First Nation's on my mother's side, hmm. and my dad's family's European, um, and he said, no, no, we don't talk about being Indians. It's just, it's not right, right? We're white people. We go to Methodist Church, right? Hmm. So it created, um uh, what I say, a, a confusion in me as growing up, because I wanted to know my grandmother. She passed away just before I was born. I never got a chance to know my native roots. It's only been in the past 10 years that I've managed 15 to really start to identify with my uh, native roots and, and become very proud of it. Um, I'm also very embarrassed to be part of a European culture that came in and eradicated 10 million people hmm. in North America. Yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, John, uh, w- w- what a wonderful set of insights. Uh, Annette Gordon-Reed, uh, react to what, what John's talking about here.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, it is a very, very rich heritage. On the indentured servant part, I I would say that the chief difference is that there was an indenture, meaning that status ended after eight years. And in most places, I'm thinking mainly now Virginia, I mean, it could have been different in other places, but um, it ended after a time. The people were given um, sometimes land and, you know, or whatever kinds of provisions they needed to get started and their children didn't follow their status. So mm-hmm. that's that's the, the big difference here, uh, being a servant for a time. And he's right. I mean, people could sell an indenture, maybe transfer it to another person and so forth, but it ended. And the difference, the innovation, if you want to call it, with, with uh, chattel slavery is that uh, the innovation from the English common law that they had to basically had to create something uh, because they didn't really recognize anything like this, was that children followed the status of their mothers. Now, the rule had been that children followed the status of their father. In England, that's what it was. But they switched it uh, in the slave system to you are what your mother was. So that creates a whole different kind of of, of Mm -hmm. system. Mm -hmm. Uh, Both people were oppressed. Both people obviously were not at the top of society. But one group of people got out of that. Now the First Nations problem, of course, is is, is different. There, this was uh, Indian removal, uh, disease, all those kinds of things resulted in the you know the near but not totally near eradication of many many uh, many people, and mm. so that's a, that's a tragedy of a different order. Uh, but I just wanted to make the point about the indentured service that, yeah. that that's a that's a I think a meaningful distinction.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, slavery is uh, also baked into the founding documents of uh, this nation. Um, Indentured servitude uh, is not. I mean, that was uh, sort of a private kind of transaction. Uh, Slavery sets uh, the stage for, um, you know, absolutely um uh, unswerving inequality uh, uh, uninsurmountable uh, i guess uh inequality for for africans in this country at the at the time of the founding and i think that's a that's a big difference too i mean the yeah too and relation, and i, and I, I should
1: yeah. yeah i should add to this and this is not so much the uh, the point about the first nation point but it's it it reified white supremacy. it it um, white supremacy existed before this notions of the superiority of of Europeans over others existed before this. But slavery reinforces that mm-hmm. uh, that idea. and it it influences too the the situation with with uh, indigenous people as well, uh, a sort of hierarchy of races. So that's that aspect of it. Uh, it's another thing that makes that different. Yeah. very different kind of thing.
0: Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue this wonderful conversation with Annette Gordon-Reed. And we will continue to hear from you, Tim in Detroit, Guillermo in Detroit, Mike in Brighton. Uh, we'll get to you next. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter and put comments there. And uh, we'll try to include you in the program that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.
2: This is Detroit
0: Today on 1019 WDET. am Stephen Henderson, and as always... I'm glad you've joined us. Uh, My guest is Annette Gordon-Reed, who is a Harvard professor and uh, the author of The Hemingses of Monticello, An American Family, which won the 2009 Pulitzer Prize for History, and a brand new book that's titled On Juneteenth. She has also written the debut piece for the second chapter of the Atlantic Magazine's project called Inheritance, which is a an attempt to fill in some of the gaps that uh, exist in our knowledge of history uh, of African Americans in this country. Uh, We want to hear from you as well during the segment. Uh, Give us a call. Tell us about the things that you wish you might have known more about or been told more about. Uh, growing up and going to school in this country about race and racism. Uh, as always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there, and uh, we'll try to work you in. Let's go to Mike in Brighton. Mike, yeah, welcome you. to the show. Yeah.
3: Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm a high school teacher. And I was teaching a, an elective called Social Problems, and so I chose to do a unit on race relations in the United States. Um, so in my research, I came across uh, the National Lynching Memorial and the work that Brian Stevenson has done. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was absolutely shocked to learn about the role lynching played in the South. Uh, I learned about it growing up. In a very small sliver of uh, in in a town during Jim Crow, uh, an African American would do some sort of social transgression and then get taken out someplace and lynched. And certainly that occurred from my research. What I had no idea about was that it was a form of domestic terrorism intended uh, to dissuade through fear. Uh, and terrorism so that uh, black people would not register to vote. Mm. And I had no idea that it occurred on Sundays in front of large crowds of people. Mm. Um, and so I, I went to our U.S. history book uh, at our school and went into the index and found lynching. By the way, I do not teach U.S. history. I teach economics and AP government. <laughs> and so I found lynching, and then I went to the page, and there was one sentence. And the one sentence was one of the reasons why... Uh, African Americans migrated to the north, um, mm-hmm. and so that's current. Uh, wow. So when we went through uh, the unit with my students, it was horrifying. Um, it, it was it was amazing, and I think as I shared it with my adult friends who are not teachers, all of them agreed. None of them were taught this, and uh, in, in its role in the South.
0: Huh. Wow, wow, Mike, that is that is astonishing. Uh, <laughs> that in twenty twenty one. There's history books that... Uh, and
3: I will, I'll just add real quickly, for anybody who's listening is interested, the lion's share of my research was from uh, the website at the National Limping Memorial Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's so much information there. there is so a ton I would of information give that there. assignment to my students to go to the website and do their own research, and then we would have class discussions around it. Yeah. And yeah. I you know, I teach in a community that um, is not diverse, and yeah. it was just very eye-opening for my students. Wow. Very wow. tough to learn about.
0: Uh, Mike, uh, great call and uh, great info. Uh, Annette, this is exactly the reason that The Atlantic is doing is doing this work and that uh, yes. you're writing stories like this.
1: Yeah, yes, yeah. It's it's an amazing. Uh, Brian Stevenson was my uh, classmate at at Harvard. Oh wow, I didn't. He's know It's a that. fantastic, fantastic man. I haven't made it down to the to the museum yet, but everything I've read about it uh, suggests that it's 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 marvelous. And and I talk a little bit about lynching in the book as well. Uh, my hometown was known for lynchings. Um, a man was burned at the stake alive um, on Courthouse Square in the late 20s in, in the town. Mm-hmm. And uh, other episodes, sort of a site of the Klan and so forth. And I think the, the caller is right. It was used as a way of making an example of uh, to other people to, to terrorize uh, other blacks mm-hmm. into submission. So it wasn't just about any one individual it was a message to the entire community
0: yeah yeah uh, again mike really appreciate the call uh and your thoughts there let's go to tim in detroit uh, tim i've only got about a minute left but i uh, wanted to get you in here
2: well i, I was hoping to uh, get a chance for her to talk about uh Rick santorum you know he talked about when when we
3: got here
2: back in sixteen, nineteen, or whenever but he's a third generation Italian. And, uh, you know, at one time, Italians weren't even just considered white people. So mm-hmm. what, what is he talking about?
0: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what he said was that, you know, when Europeans got here, there was no culture. I mean, he talks about the founding of this country as the establishment uh, of culture on this continent, which is a, uh, an incredibly, uh, dismissive and racist uh, way to think of uh, to, to, to think of this this place that was full of people and culture before uh, before white people got here. Uh, Annette, uh, what do you think of what Tim's talking about here?
1: Well, yes, it was it was quite a statement. Um, there was a culture here; it wasn't European culture. There were cultures mm-hmm. here, I should say, lots of them. Yeah, lots of cultures. Uh, there was agriculture, just not plowing in the way that. Uh, Europeans plowed their rows, uh, women worked in the fields, and, they, and European women uh, did work in the fields, but the story was that they didn't, they were really talking about upper class women, <laughs> didn't work in the fields. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, it's, a lot of people feel that way, and because it's such a, it's the, the previous caller talking about the, the numbers who were here when they arrived, when Europeans arrived, and then the numbers, how they fell, Afterwards, uh, it's a tough thing to take in. So the story is that there was nobody here, mm-hmm. but there were people here, and yeah. we know that. And we this is something that has become much more part of the curriculum. I would say uh, much more than when I was a kid many mm-hmm. years ago. Uh, and it's something I think should continue to inform our understanding of of the founding and the the development of the American nation. That it was over. The land of other people, yeah, and that's just a reality.
0: Yeah. Okay, Annette Gordon Reed, really great to have you here for this conversation. Thanks so much. Thank you for having for me. It. Yes, and you can oh, check fine. out her piece uh, in the Atlantic Magazine. That's gonna do it for us this week. I'll be back on Monday when we're going to talk about a new study from the Brookings Institution about COVID-19 disparities in Detroit and how to create a more equitable pandemic recovery. We'll also talk about Senator Tim Scott's assertion last week that America is not a racist country. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again on Monday.